Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Today on Sport Faith Life, we are joined by a man with many titles, namely the Reverend Canon Dr. John Ashley Null. Fortunately, he allows us to just call him Ashley. Ashley is an internationally respected scholar on the English Reformation. He holds research degrees from Yale and the University of Cambridge, and he's received numerous awards for his work, particularly on a five-volume project on the private theological notebooks of Thomas Cranmer. But it's what he does in his spare time that we, we pay attention to here on Sport Faith Life. Ashley serves as a chaplain to elite athletes, and we mean very elite athletes. Ashley himself has been a three-time Olympic chaplain, most recently in London in 2012. We have so much to talk about with Ashley, so let's get started. Well, we're so excited to have John Ashley Nall with us here today, and we're going to start with the question about sport. Ashley, tell us something about sport in your life. Um, I'm afraid it's nothing terribly spectacular. Um, I was um, part of the high school track team uh, in the weights division to get good exercise, and I was a water safety instructor. Um, but in terms of serious competitive sport, uh, that is not uh, uh, something that I did. But there is a real quiet joy of running the roads and the fence posts of rural Kansas in the emerging sunlight, a sense of, of freedom and being at one with the landscape and yourself and your God um, that carried me through many a time of stress uh, when I was growing up. So in that sense, if not competitive sport, the joy of sport, was very much part of my growing up. Well, sport certainly takes a number of different instantiations and forms in different lives, that's for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about faith in your life. Well, um, I'm both a accidental Anglican and one by conviction. Uh, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Um, uh, my father uh, comes from a family of Episcopalians, but my mother comes from a family of Southern Baptists. In fact, uh, the very first foreign mission secretary for uh, the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 1840s was my three great grandfathers ago. So I, I grew up in a household where the dignity and the power of the word mediated through a liturgical format uh, was combined with the evangelical fervor of a Bible-believing uh, set of parents. So um, it produced, much to the disappointment of the high church cathedral that I went to, a low church Anglican. Well, I, I think our, uh, our audience is starting to get a sense of your poetic language, which comes, uh, I think, just from your, um, your upbringing, but also traveling the world. And so I'm a little 
Uh, I'm really curious to ask this next next question, whether it's like grounded in your your home where you grew up or somewhere you've traveled. Uh, tell us something about you that uh, maybe folks don't know. Help us get to know Ashley Knoll. You know, the, the Irish farmer who said, if that's where you want to go, I wouldn't be starting from here. You should have a much more interesting person when you ask that question than with me. He's a judge um, but uh, I do um, a variety of things. Um, I'm, my day job is as a, as a, a research scholar. Um, I'm editing the private theological notebooks of the first Protestant reformer of England, which means that I'm daily in medieval Latin shorthand translating it for folks who may not have acquired that particular obscure skill. But I'm also uh, an Episcopal slash Anglican priest, so I am active uh, Thomas Cramner was the author of the uh, first set of prayer books for the Anglican tradition. So I get the privilege of teaching around the world in various Anglican seminaries about his theology of grace and gratitude. Um, and so, for instance, I'm uh, the uh, chairman of the board of the Alexandria School of Theology Education System, which means that we oversee um, several institutions that from very, very basic Bible training to sophisticated research master's degrees in the 10 countries of Northern Africa. Um, and because of uh, God's gracious sense of humor and accidents of history, I do a sports chaplaincy for elite athletes because if anyone needs the message of grace and gratitude, and not having to earn God's love, um, that tends to be highly competitive athletes. And because I was reared in Kansas, a friend of mine asked me to contribute to a book called 150 Years of Kansas Beef. And my chapter was Cowboys, Cattle Towns, and Cattle Trails of Kansas. So I don't know if I can be lyrical, but I can talk factually about the cattle drives to Kansas or 16th century theology, or uh, the political situation in modern day Cairo. Well, okay, that's exactly uh, what I anticipated with that answer, and uh, and thanks for that. I, as much as I want to uh, really explore that uh, that cattle background and cattle question, I think I'm going to go back one topic earlier. This is. Well, this may, is may I just say one thing about about the cattle towns? Fire away. I had no idea the average age of a cowboy on a cattle trail drive was 14 to 18. The average age of the trail boss was 18 to 25. And the average age of the owners were 35. So when you think of cowboys, think of the Texas varsity football team with liquor and guns. <laughs> You know, uh, we always have maybe these images in our head of cowboys, and it's usually a grizzled, older man, typically. Uh, and I think we do the same thing with disciples. I think uh, if we would look back at uh, who Jesus was hanging out with, they were younger than what we picture. Uh, a really interesting um, way to think about just the, the youth and energy of those, of, of those time periods and, and those experiences. I wonder if, as we go 
uh, back into your answer a little bit where you started to intersect and you started to connect with sport. You started to take your Anglican faith and your ministry fervor and somehow it got connected with sport. And you said, you know, you kind of gave us a teaser on grace and gratitude. Tell me a little bit about how that intersection took hold early on. Well, what I like to tell people is all I do is explain to athletes, it's Cramner for jocks. Hmm. Because the medieval period, despite their best intentions of trying to be faithful, because they had uh, brought reason in as a co-worker and beginning to understand the faith, they ended up with a system where you literally had to be good enough for God to accept you. And, um, and part of that was based on the quality of your effort. And it cultivated a atmosphere of uncertainty about your future salvation so as to maximize uh, your effort. If you, if you were perpetual uncertainty whether you were going to make it, you'd keep trying harder. Now, in their view, that prevented you from being deceived by the devil and getting your moral muscles soft. They would be razor sharp so you could withstand temptation. You wouldn't fall and so you'd be saved. But that meant that you were constantly foster children that the minute you sinned, God gave you back to the devil until you did enough in his eyes to be brought back in. And this was a revolving door and you wouldn't know at what point you would die, whether you would be in their language in a state of grace or a state of damnation. And the reformers, Martin Luther had the insight that where there's fear, love can't grow. And the only way that we can love God is to know that we're unconditionally saved first and that our efforts aren't to try to get something we don't have, but to give away and express what we've been given. And that may seem like a small difference but if you've gotten on the treadmill, on the hamster wheel of trying to prove to your coach, to your parents, to your school, to your teammates, to yourself, that you're good enough, the knowledge that you don't have to prove you're good enough, that, that our relationship with God, our power for sanctification with God, is not based, our hope isn't in our effort for God, but God's effort for us, that the cross changes everything. And therefore we can find hope and peace in the midst of difficulties. I could go on, but you probably want to ask me a question by now. <laughs> we want to ask you a lot of questions. And the, the more you talk, the more questions we have, which is great. I'm wondering uh, what, what came first here. So you've got this, um, you've got this, this theological viewpoint, uh, grace, gratefulness, uh, performance identity, 
And that fits so well with, with athletes. That's so needed in the, in the world of elite sports where athletes are seeking things that they don't have. That, that's what drives them in many ways because of the performance ethic in sport. Is this, is this a, 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 theological, um, a theological idea that you had that you brought to sport or were you working with athletes beforehand and just thought, boy, this is something that they really need that fits with what I believe? I guess it's maybe a chicken or egg question, which came first. Did you come into working with athletes and then realize this is what they need more than anything else? Or did you have this, this idea that you brought along with you to, to sport or maybe some combination of the two? I guess I'm curious as to how you got into working with elite athletes. Uh, completely by happenstance or perhaps by divine design. Um, I'm a senior in college. I'm, I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And at that time, there was a, a very lively uh, student ministry uh, movement. So I was in the Episcopal Chapel. We had 250 members in our chapel group. The Southern Baptists had the same, same with the Presbyterians and the Methodists. But because we had such strong denominational ministries, we never could come together as a, as a group on campus. And the only way we could do that was if we had a student-led group. So Student Fellowship Group, SFG, was founded. And it was the custom of SF, SFG that leaders in their senior year would lead Bible studies for freshmen. And I uh, uh, led a Bible study. And in that Bible study, there was uh, a swimmer. At that time, SMU was one of the top uh, five swim schools in, in the country. And um, he and his roommate began to uh, pull back the curtain and let me understand what their lives were really like. I had, I had no idea. Um, and the roommate refused to come to any kind of public Christian activity. Why? Can you guess why? I, I'll, I'll take a stab. Um, I think athletes are attractions and potentially people felt like they were being used um, to gain attention. Am I getting anywhere close? Bingo. He Whoa. felt like it was a trophy and that people hmm. were only interested in him so that he could be a magnet hmm. to attract other people to the group. Hmm. That if we were going to do Bible study, it was going to be in his room. That um, SMU at that time had an auditorium that you're basically right on top of the swim team. There was no real a dedicated space for the team and the fans. And so after the meet, everybody would go up to the swim team. And his rule was that if you're my friend, you meet me in my room 45 minutes after the meet. The people who come up to me in the swim pool are just posers. <laughs> he made a clear division that he would not want, he wanted to know who cared about him and who wanted to be, who cared about being seen with him. And just listening to their lives, I. I wrote a set of lyrics. I'm going to try to see if I can remember them. Uh, um, you have to imagine a, um, a country Western tune. Um, it's called Tumbling Stream. My father used to say, come on, son, swim faster still. 
you'll be a great man someday if you only will. Come on, son, polish your body like a stone today. Make the water smooth your rough spots away. And the tumbling stream keeps turning them stones, making them bright and shiny. And the tumbling stream keeps turning them stones, making them bright and shiny. Then I used to say, I'm sorry, Johnny, Jimmy, Sally, and Sue. I'd like to, but I can't play with you. Either I've got to practice or I've got to sleep. Dad says, what you sow is what you reap. And the tumbling stream keeps turning them stones, making them bright and shiny. And the tumbling stream keeps turning them stones, making them bright and shiny. Growing older, going better. No time for friends who use your name. Friendship, fellowship, they're a big game. I'm going to make it in a great big way. I'm going to be the best, the very best someday. And the tumbling stream keeps polishing them stones, making them bright and shiny. And the tumbling stream keeps polishing them stones, making them bright and shiny. This refrain keeps echoing through my brain. World records, Olympic medals, I've got a few. Gold-plated false friends, more ambition too. I'm sorry, John, Jim, Sal, and Sue. I'm too old to compete. I've got to find something new to do. And the tumbling stream, and the tumbling stream has polished them stones, washing them up nearby. And the tumbling stream has polished them stones, leaving them high and dry. And what as you can see, clearly broke my pastoral heart is the lives of futility these elite athletes were leading and the church's ministries reaching out to them were completely oblivious. And all they could see was the glitter and the glamour and how they could attract people to their ministries but their own needs, they were dying on the inside. And what they needed to know was two things, that they didn't have to earn God's love and they didn't need to earn the church's love. And that um, God was a safe place for them to find healing and in there find out what their true potential as a person was, both their calling um, and their gifts in sport, and that uh, God would companion them through the darkest moments of their life, um, that we, I, I always say uh, in the Olympic Village, I can't promise, I don't know whether tomorrow's gonna be Good Friday or Easter Sunday, and if it's Good Friday, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean the nails won't hurt. But this I can promise you. If it is Good Friday, loss won't get the last word. That Easter will come. That God is a good steward of the pain. And he will use it to take you to a bigger, better, brighter, bolder future. Basically, all I do with athletes is help them have a solid hope and to give loss meaning. Because in God's hands, it all works for his perfect plan to make their athletic talent not a burden, but a profound blessing in ways they could never imagine. Uh, 
Ashley, as you're um, singing, saying your song and, and thinking through, I can tell that you're thinking of athletes, right? I can tell that you can, you are scrolling in your mind through particular people and your pastoral instinct comes out as you think through and restate uh, those words. And I guess I, I, I've got a lot of questions coming out of that, but one of them I, I'd like to know uh, as a sport person, how this lands. In other words, uh, they are engaged in this performance-based um, entity and you can't make that go away. And I'm not sure that you would, you would want to make that go away. I'm, maybe you would, uh, but you are coming in alongside a person and saying that God is not working by these rules, right? God is not um, measuring you the way you're being measured in sport. What does that message do for the athlete who tomorrow and the next day and the next year goes back to that performance-based space to, um, to try to perform? Well, may, before I answer that question, should we circle back and let me answer the previous question? I, very, I may very, have lost that one. <laughs> very, very briefly. Yeah, go. So that... That, that poem was written um, um, it, it, during that semester that I was uh, working with these athletes and trying to figure out what's God, how does God's love apply to them. A year later was the Olympics. And so the deal was that I would try to go as a chaplain and they would try to go as athletes. And so I was a chaplain at the 84 Olympic Games. And once you're an Olympic chaplain, that does tend to open up doors in the future. So I got involved. I tried to retire um, and because I have a full life and wasn't quite sure this was really something that someone so completely unsporty as me should be involved in. Um, but uh, uh, Josh Davis persuaded me to come and help him with his ministry of chapels at Nationals in, in 2000. And so I have been involved regularly since. Um, I think we need to answer your current question. We need to take a step back and examine what is the competitive drive and what's it mean to have performance-based identity because those often are seen as synonymous. And I think the Bible would say no. Usually what we do as we say, either competition and meaning that proving myself better than somebody else is either in the garden or a resort of the fall, and that's the debate. And I think that that debate lacks precision. There are two kinds of competition. As you say in your book, competition is just a specific organized form of comparison. And comparison is often used in our culture as the basis of shaming people to manipulate them. But we forget that uh, Paul uses comparison as a positive thing. And therefore what we have to ask, is it comparison for self-awareness or comparison for self-worth? Is it comparison for self-knowledge or is it comparison 
for self-importance. The Bible tells us that the work of the spirit in human beings is a difficult thing to know, right? That's why we look for older saints to get some idea of what's possible in sanctification, right? And Paul points out to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that the, how the spirit was able to enable the Macedonians to be so generous in their giving and that they should look to that as a guidepost to help them understand and pray for what the spirit should be doing in them. You know, everyone knows that nobody thought it was possible to break the four minute mile. And then within 46 days, someone had lowered Bannister's record. And then the next year, three people went under the four minute mile in one race. When we see what's possible, we then seek to emulate that. And it's only an understanding by comparison, not only do we get a sense of what we can do, but only by comparison do we figure out whether we're an eye or a toe. Our calling, self-awareness, we need to have other people to get a sense of what God made us for. So our vocation, according to Paul, requires us to compare. But here's the difference and the, the decisive point. Paul says our worth and value in 2 Corinthians 12 is based on the cross and all equal. Just because you discover you're an eye, that doesn't mean you have more value than a toe. What human culture does is it takes the results of comparison and then awards different status. And different cultures do it differently, but they don't say people are equal. And that's where sin comes in, not the fact that God has created us with different abilities to different degrees. In the body of Christ, that diversity is honored because it's rooted in a sense of our worth and value established by Jesus. But society doesn't look to Jesus to establish our worth. It says, based on these comparisons, we will say you're more important and you're less important. And that society function is the serpent slithering in the world of sport. And therefore, we do have a natural desire to figure out what makes us tick. A natural desire to figure out what can we do. And competition is simply an organized way for us to discover what God is doing in us. And one of the most powerful things, when you stop to help athletes process the experience of sport in the gospel, and not just what the results can do for the church and things like evangelism, you help them discover their own limitations in the midst of the abundance of talent. Because what is the most difficult muscle to train? The one between the ears. And the gospel helps them hear God's call, his presence, his peace, his power, and his assurance that the results, whatever they may be, 
he will norm them to his good purposes for them. On the one hand, when athletes discover they don't have to earn God's love, you will see a slump because that's what's motivated them all their lives. And all of a sudden it's like, thank God literally that I don't have to do that anymore. The worst thing, can you guess the number one question I'm asked by uh, Christian athletes who don't meet their goals in the village? The number one question is? I would guess it has something to do with identity. Um, maybe um, what, what value am I if I'm unable to do this? If that were the case, I would be happy because that's an easy answer, right? Number one question, what did I do wrong? There is, when you have a performance-based identity in sport, you normally carry that into your Christian faith. And if you fail in your Christian faith, then you shame yourself to try to get better. And if you, and you have this unspoken, never articulated, but deeply felt belief that if I'm good enough, pure enough, religious enough, do enough activities in support of my sports ministry, that when it counts, God will be there for me and I'll win. And if I have not handled the pressure well, and if I have given into unhelpful habits, then that's going to mean that I'm not going to be pure enough on the day. And that's why I lost. But if I've given everything to be pure enough and to honor God in all I'm doing, and I still lost, then why is God mad at me? Why didn't he give me? So the only thing worse than disappointing your coach, your teammate, your family who on average have spent $20,000 coming to the Olympics to watch you compete and yourself is not being able to go to God for comfort and hope that he will pick up the pieces and make something beautiful out of it because you lost because you're a sinner and you deserved his punishment. And the devil is whispering, shame, shame, shame. And so often I have, I've come to realize, no, I don't even know an irresponsible sports minister who makes a one-to-one -one correlation that if you do, if you help me out on these activities, God's going to make you win. I don't know anyone who says that. But if you don't preach against it, because the whole culture that athletes are deeply enmeshed in, that's how they're going to interpret it. And you have to consciously preach against it, lest the Christian faith become another performance wheel that bogs them down rather than frees them and lifts them up. Should I give you a chance to say something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say to, to our listeners, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, much like Brian and I are, We'd encourage you to uh, have a listen to Ashley's new audio book called Performance Identity, The Folly of Striving to Earn God's Favor. Such a, such a great and deep title. And uh, you know, the audio book, as I'm listening to it, is, is chock full of really uh, deep insight that's presented in, in such a, it's, a, it's presented in a, in a narrative-based way. You, know, you have stories that are augmenting these deep theological points you're making. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, for a few moments just 
uh, the reason for this project. Uh, you know, clearly you've got this connection with athletes, but you're talking about performance identity in a way that's much broader than just athletics. I mean, this is this is is uh, theology 101. I don't say that because it's simple. It's not simple, but the way you're presenting it is to a, it seems like it would be uh, applicable to a much deeper audience, a much broader audience. Um, actually, it's part of a larger work explaining the English Reformation. Because the whole point of the English Reformation is to recover a biblical sense of identity in Christ that we don't strive to win X because X will make us feel complete. By the way, guess what the most de depressing day in most Olympic gold medalist lives is? The day after. Yeah, the day that he wins is a pretty good day. But the day after when they realize it hasn't made all the problems go away. And now that, now that they're Olympian, uh, they have a lot more problems than they ever knew before. Um, life gets more complicated, not easier. Um, and the sense that everybody thinks I've made it and I know I haven't. And if I tell people the sense of emptiness, I'm whining because they would give anything to have what I have, but it's not enough. There is the gospel and those circumstances has real power because it alone satisfies the human soul and people who no longer have the pleasant delusion that if they get X, they will be satisfied. They listen because um, they don't have meaning and purpose anymore. Which is great, which is very ironic, isn't it? And if you think that I'm exaggerating, listen to Michael Phelps's HBO special. I am so glad that the things that I have been seeing for years um, is now out in the public domain because you see sports is entertainment and entertainment is a fantasy. And the fantasy that we've been selling is that if you could just be like this person, you would have it all. And they're taking back the curtain and saying, well, actually, no. And if that's, if that's true, then what is the point of life? And that's where the gospel has something solid to offer. Actually, the, the work that you've done in, in and through this book and, and other work and just your engagement with uh, athletes at, at every level um, is pushing boundaries. And, and, I, and I love how you're reinterpreting uh, things that, that on the surface, we think we kind of have it figured out, especially in this sort of combination of sport and faith. And you're, you're peeling that back and... Uh, to the benefit of athletes, but also I think it speaks back into this whole world of sport ministry and this idea that um, sport and faith uh, are symbiotic partners um, is not new, right? They've been connected for a, a long period of time. Um, how would you summarize maybe your message to sport chaplains, to sport ministers. I know it's a tough, uh, it's a tough thing to summarize that into a, a smaller space, but I, I know you've watched it. I know you've seen it and I know you've seen it done well and done poorly. See if you can give us uh, something that helps that group as well. Let me um, quote three favorite Bible verses. 
Philippians 1.6, for I am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Um, are either of y'all, you know, uh, biblical scholars, is there something, a footnote in the Greek text that says, if you try hard enough? Uh, I'm not aware of that. Yes. <laughs> if you're good enough, that is a wonderful unconditional promise that God is so loving and powerful, despite all of our good and bad choices, that he's worked out a way to redeem all of our lives so that when we stand before him, we will be astounded that in the midst of our feebleness and faltering and failures, he's made something beautiful out of our lives. That is the foundational verse for Christian athletes, that ultimately their careers and their lives, I mean, here's a great divide amongst Christians. Has, called, has God called you to build something beautiful for you? Or has he called you to discern something beautiful that he has made you for and prepared in advance for you to do? Is it something you have to do to persuade him that you've been good and faithful? Or is it his work to determine that he has a plan that's going to enable you to do that? And one of the great debates is grace and free will, right? Well, I go to second, the second chapter of Philippians, verses 12 and 13. You guys got Bibles, Andy? Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh-oh, work out your salvation. Um, does or, that sound or, like, like sweat or, equity? It does. About effort? <laughs> Seems like work. Seems like work there. Isn't it true? I don't know about you guys, but in my Christian experience, I don't make any progress until I make good choices and I stick by those choices. And sometimes it's a real struggle to stick by those choices, but I'm not a puppet. If I do not exercise my will and do what God calls, I, I'm stuck, right? But what's the next verse? Verse 13. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul isn't saying that we're puppets and our wills don't matter. They absolutely do. And they are essential for Christian growth. But what makes it possible for our wills to do the right thing? Because we're such good, decent and righteous people? No. Because the spirit is at work in us to woo our wills, to desire, and then to do the right thing. And God has a variety of ways of wooing. Sometimes it's soft wooing, sometimes it's rougher, like two by fours. But the point is that it's God's, our faithfulness that we exercise through the choices of our will that willpower is the gift of his working in us. So therefore, if you are a sports minister, 
the first thing you have to recognize is that God has a plan for your life and for your athletes' lives. And that's going to require sweat equity on your part and on the part of the athlete. But that's not where your hope is. That's not your safety net when things get rough. Your hope is his promise to enable you to follow those things. And Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. If you're a sports minister, the first thing you need to get in touch with is your own performance-based identity issues, especially if you're a product of sport. Because if you are unaware of those issues, they will drive you in ways you do not understand. And you will end up using the people you're trying to serve. You will simply harness their performance-based identity issues, conveying, if not verbally specifically, conveying to them the impression that if they work hard for you, then God will work hard for them when they compete. And in my experience, far more Christian athletes do not achieve their goals because we are warned that friendship with the world is not what we should expect. There are those exceptional few that God lavishes not only talent and opportunity, but success. But there are lots of others whom for whatever plan of God's discipleship for them, that they embrace the cross and have to discern that God has a different path for them than they had expected. But because it's God's path, it's actually better. Once you've gotten in touch with your own issues, your own brokenness, then, gosh, I'm so sorry. Brian, could you read another um, of uh, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. As one person said, that may be a little bit more Bible than they're used to, but it won't hurt them any. <laughs> Second Corinthians 1, verse 5? 3 to 5. 3 to 5. All right. Second Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. Praise be to God and Father our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who com comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. As sports ministers, let Christ minister to their woundedness. Um, I have a pastoral rule. Back to your qu question, Chad. Performance-based identity is the culture of overachievement as worth and value in America, in any, in any field, whether it's business, academics, arts, or sports. And I have a pastoral rule. If someone goes very far, very fast. The question to ask is, what are they running from? It isn't always the case. 
Some folks can be so lavishly talented that they with ease and grace rise to the top. But for the vast majority, there is a pain, there is a woundedness, there is a sense of rejection that spurs them to prove, whether it's to a parent or to classmates or to themselves, that they are worth something. Mm -hmm. And the question to ask yourself as a sports minister is what made you turn to sports to self-medicate your pain? And to let Jesus begin to be the real answer to that pain and not sports. Because if you don't, you will simply switch performance in sports with performance as a minister. And when you get your identity from uh, your ministry, you will end up hating the people you minister to because they're gonna let you down. They're gonna be human. They're gonna make mistakes. They're not gonna be as faithful. They're not going to attend as much. And if you take that as a sign that you haven't taught them properly or fear that, if you see their mistakes as a reflection on your ministry, then you will both manipulate them and be ashamed of them. The greatest line you can say is, I'm disappointed in what you've done, but you're never a disappointment to me. As you find comfort for the woundedness that turned you to sport as self-medication, you can take that very same comfort and speak good news to the athletes with whom you work and watch as God uses sport to disciple them, to refine them. I don't know anyone who lives by faith as much as athletes. And that proving ground, then when it comes time for them to be your successors, you will be astounded at how God has matured them and the message you imparted in them to influence another generation and another generation until Christ comes back. Well, Reverend John Ashley Knoll, uh, thank you so much for spending a little time with us. I think uh, we have barely scratched the surface with Ashley Knoll, uh, but it's been a pleasure and a delight. Uh, and we thank you very much for being with us. It's been a, a joy and an honor. And thank you for your thoughtful approach of insisting on biblical wisdom but also valuing the authentic experience of the athletes and making job number one, figuring out what the gospel has to say to the sporting experience first, and then how God may use that sporting experience for other things. But it's my firm belief that God's, God's arm is not too short, nor his love too little to pastor his athletes in the midst of the heat of competition and its aftermath.
Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.